0: got about half an hour to talk about something I can probably talk about two and a half, three hours for and have done in the past. So um, I'm uh, going to talk quite quickly. So um, I'm going to talk about patient safety. Okay. It's a big passion of mine. I'm an anaesthetist. That's kind of why I came into the job. I I wanted to improve the welfare of patients that were um, uh, coming into my practice. And um, I felt that, like... From an ethical side of things, I was going into the most noble of all specialties. Okay? Um, so um, what is patient safety? Um, well, Patient safety can be de- uh, defined as reducing unnecessary harm that occurs during medical care. So if you look at the, the, that, the thing that springs out of, of that to me is unnecessary harm. Okay? Unnecessary to me means it's preventable, and it's something we can do something about. In essence, patient safety is us trying to um, reduce the amount of harm we do to our patients. Um, So that kind of iatrogenic harm, that harm that doesn't benefit the patient in any way. Everyone knows that if you do surgery on a patient, you're going to harm the patient, but there's a tangible benefit. It's that complications of surgery or anaesthesia that we're looking at trying to minimise. So why discuss it? Well, first of all, it involves absolutely everyone in the practice. We've spoken about involving everyone in the team, everyone, um, all our previous lecturers have said it's a, it's a team effort. And that's exactly um, the same with patient safety, and that's imp- incredibly important to recognise. And this includes the patients and the clients, all the way down to your professor or your head of practice and your practice manager. It's something we can and should improve. Okay, It's something that we should be striving to improve all the time, and this is kind of the point of the day. Quality of improvement is something that we should all be doing in our day-to-day jobs. It's well publicised. Um, I did have a slide of um, hundreds of uh, 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 newspaper articles and clippings about um, vets that have made mistakes, doctors that have made mistakes, etc. But I had to take that out because it took too long. Um, but it, it's we're really out there. It's publicised. It's big, it's big news. Um, and really, patient safety for me is the biggest quality improvement market that there is. It should be what we're all um, uh, aiming to do. Um, and just to stick some numbers on this, I found this article particularly shocking. So, this is from the US, okay, so it's private healthcare, okay, relatively, should be a, a relatively good standard. But they, they said that preventable harm to patients was estimated at more than um, 400,000 cases per, per year. Um, and that was lethal harm. So that's the amount of patients that died through medical problems. Okay, that's a huge number. And then they said that serious harm seems to be ten to 25 more than that. Okay. So if the medical profession, if a, in a relatively good, well, in, in, in what should be a relatively good healthcare system, is harming a huge number of their patients, then we probably are too. And just to bring it back down to um, veterinary medicine. What we swore to was to ensure the health and welfare of animals to um, committed to our care. And therefore, patient safety should be the thing that we're really aiming for the most. And the nice thing about patient safety is, is you can improve safety in whatever um, environment that you're working in, whether you're working in a Spain user clinic out in um, Southeast Asia or whether you're working in um, a highfalutin hospital um, in the developed world. Right. That's the uncomfortable truth. Okay, throughout your career, you're going to make errors. Okay, everyone makes mistakes. We've talked about it previously today. It's something that is inevitable when you're a human. I make errors every single day. Um, I almost got on the wrong tube. I was recently in Berlin and I almost ended up in Poland. Um, it is just something that, that is going to happen. And a lot goes on in our lives. We have a work life. We have a <coughs> private life, and we are going to make errors. Unfortunately. I didn't end up in Poland, but and it didn't cause me any harm. Okay, it just gives me a relatively good story to tell when I'm lecturing. However, if you do it with a patient and there's a patient on the table, okay, I'm, I'm an anesthetist. It's all going to be about surgery and anaesthesia. I'm afraid, but it, it you can it can kind of relate to consultations as well. But it may harm or even kill a patient if you make a wrong diagnosis, um, if you give an animal the wrong drug dose, etc. That can all go on to harm the patient. Um, and as I said. I'm interested in anaesthesia, it's very acute, something goes wrong, something goes wrong quite quickly, Um, so that's where I'm coming from. So um, just to reiterate a very important um, uh, message, that errors are made by everyone, however talented, however conscientious, however caring you are, you have the potential to make an error. Um, And it doesn't make you a bad person, it doesn't mean you're not good at your job, okay. As I say, I make errors every single day, okay, I mess up. I'm fortunate enough that I 'm relatively good at solving the problem when it occurs, but um, they still happen and they've still got the potential to harm the patient. Um, when I say we you know everyone makes mistakes and we shouldn't blame you should blame yourself, etc. you do still have a responsibility and you should still be accountable for what happened. but instead of being accountable and taking the blame, you should be recognizing you should right okay, I see that an error has occurred we should. Investigating it, just as we looked at, um, if anyone went to the um, significant um, incident or event or audit se- session, something's occurred. You you are accountable, and you should be the person that instigates some sort of investigation into that. You should correct any problems or attempt to correct any problems that um, or conditions that you hear, and you should make attempts to stop um, stop those errors happening again. Okay, but that is what you're. Don't, that is what you're responsible for. You're not responsible for the error occurring in the first place. Okay? Just to think about our job, okay? We are very well educated and we um, our job is very complicated. That doesn't matter whether you're an anaesthetist or a surgeon in a, in a hospital or whether you're a receptionist or a, um, a, uh, a general practitioner, okay? You have a lot of different balls to juggle. And... It's inevitable that at some point one of the balls will drop. Okay, you've got the animal. Yes, you've got the health and welfare of the animal. Okay, you've then got the client and their emotions and their finances, and those two things may clash. Okay, the animal may be better off being euthanized, but the, an- uh, the owner is emotionally attached to the animal. or Has an autistic son that the animal is his best friend. Ha- ha- you know, these cause stress. Um, You've got your responsibility to your practice, so you've got a responsibility to bring in some money, okay, and you've got to look good to the um, um, to the public, your colleagues. You need to be. Uh, professional towards them, you need to have good inter- interpersonal relations, and you've got to look at, you know, workload. Is, that my, is my colleague taking on too much? Maybe I can take some of their work off them. And then you've got the wider community, and then unfortunately right at the bottom you've got yourself, and that's generally the thing that ends up um, uh, being neglected um, more often than not, unfortunately. Okay, and actually, juggling these things is often an impossible task. Okay, so our lives are very complicated, our work is very complicated. So you may... So we've got a lot of pressure. Okay, we've got case responsibility. You know, if you're the vet, um, you've got the direct responsibility for the diagnosis, etc. If you're the nurse, you may have um, responsibility for monitoring the anaesthetic. But we've got a, You know, that, that can be significant. You have a patient's life in your hands. You've got decision making. You've got. You may be working independently. Okay, you may not be working in a team that day. You may be working out on your own, and that may be stressful. You've got the expectations of clients that are like, looming over your head. You've got the expectations of your employer laying, laying over your head as well. You may be working in a new environment. Okay. Okay. All of these things can affect you. Your workload, how tired you are, etc. Et they can all happen. And then there's certain self-expectations as well. Okay, And um, they can be significant. And they all have the potential to impair the way you work. So when you look at these things, the kind of the, the, the things that, the factors that can underlie error um, we're looking at things like stress, fatigue distraction, illness, overwork time constraints, problem, patient client, understaffing Okay, for me, that's what happens in everyday in veterinary practice, okay, I remember working in general practice, that happened and it happens now I work in a referral practice it's the same, the, the, the same thing, <coughs> just to different degrees um, And all these things are going on and sometimes they're inevitable and you can't get away from it. We work in a very stressful environment. We're dealing with life and death situations. There's no way we're going to pull all the stress away and there's no way we can control our personal lives to that extent either. So what type of errors am I talking about? Okay, So I'm mainly going to be talking about surgical and anaesthetic errors. Okay, So the type of errors you may see are forgetting to check the patient before you anaesthetise it. to check the history. We had a case earlier in the significant event audit where the patient's history wasn't checked, and it was relatively clear from the history that a patient had had anaesthetic problems in the past. We may have medication errors. We may be forgetting a vital piece of equipment. Surgical errors. Okay, the biggest one that we have in our hospital is, is not is a lack of communication within the team. Okay, the surgeon knows exactly what he's going to do and what equipment that he wants, and he comes into theatre and it's not there. And it's because he hasn't told anyone, and he just expected them to know. Okay, communication is a massive um, a massive issue. Um, not having consent. Okay, it's relatively common for an animal to come into a hospital to say have a workup for. Vomiting and diarrhoea, and have it consented for a certain amount of things, and then oh, well, actually, you know what? We need to do a scope on that. We need, a G- we need to do an anaesthetic, and we need to do an upper um, GI endoscopy, and then you kind of chat to the owners. But people are anaesthetising it. Well, there's no, there's no consent for actual to say that. I've actually consented for anaesthesia specifically, and for endoscopy specifically, and someone's actually described the problems as, um, that could be associated with that. These often, more often than not, these errors involve people forgetting to perform something relatively simple, okay? Something that you think maybe, how can that possibly have been forgotten? Okay. Unfortunately, as you've seen, we work in a, com- in a complex environment. We work in um, uh, often very stressful conditions, and those things happen. Okay. The under, and, and again, communicating effectively is, 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 is one of the, the big important things and I'm going to come here to talk about checklists and where they come in and communication for me is the key to a checklist it's not anything else that's involved it's being able to communicate properly with, with the people in your team the big thing is an over-reliance on memory okay. if you have to rely on your memory all the time in a stressful situation or when you're pushed for time that may fail Okay, and that's where checklists come in. Okay, so checklists are safety tools. They're not, they're not a shopping list or a recipe for a procedure. Okay, they don't outline every single point in the procedure. Okay, if you've got one of those and you give it to someone to do, and and they do it the first time they do it, they tick every box. The second time they do it, they tick every box. The third time they do it, they don't tick any boxes at all. And the fourth time, they leave it on the side and don't use it at all. Okay. A checklist is just the critical steps, okay? It's those ones that are fundamental that you feel are the things that ensure that your patient will be safe as you move through a procedure. Okay? And they're a concept introduced through aviation. So I'm gonna do a little bit of history because I like that. I like planes and stuff. So... Um Basically, in the Second World War, the Americans wanted a new bomber so they could go over and bomb the Germans, okay? The bombers they had could not carry enough bombs and they couldn't fly far enough, okay? So Boeing came up with this, which um, doesn't look like it's going to be very effective, okay? They had a big um, air show, basically, where all the military people came out in their uniforms to watch all these planes take off, and Boeing had one with four engines, could take, like, ten times as many bombs and could fly so much further than all the competition. It was a winner, okay? It took off, and then it crashed, and burst into flames. Okay. Now, obviously, that was a bit of a disaster for Boeing. And, um, but they looked at it, and they thought, well, initially, it's too much plane. Okay. This plane is far too complicated. No single person is able to fly it. <coughs> However, what it really was was there was just too, much, too many tasks. It was too much for that one man to actually remember to do in order, during that pro during the process. So during the process of taking the plane off. And what they came up with was, was checklists. Okay. So they devised the checklist to ensure that the pilot would perform all the little tasks that they do. And that's the original checklist on the on the left. Okay. They introduced this checklist. So it's got before starting, when starting the engines, engine run-up before takeoff, after takeoff, before landing, etc. etc. And it runs through all the key steps like check your flaps, etc. etc. Once they got this in order and they trained their pilots, everything was fine. And they actually got the military contract and the plane became the B-17, which is actually one of the most um, successful bombers of of history. So um, these checklists have... And and where they've taken it is they've taken it into every aspect of of aviation. Um, And what they do is... Is they just think, you know, it is complex. You're not going to remember anything. There's too many tasks. But some of these tasks cannot be forgotten. And it's these tasks that we're going to put on the checklist. Um, they recognize that it's actually really easy to cut corners. OK, it's really easy to oversimplify something and to go, you know what, I'll just skip that, t- that one thing this one time. And that that could actually cause a problem. Because if you miss an essential step, if it's one of those essential steps that you miss, so you just, I just missed that one thing, but then that one thing would have led you into do something else, okay, then that could, that could turn disastrous. And that may lead to harm. So this might be flying a plane. For me, it's anaesthetising a patient. Um, it could be preparing, for our nurses, it's preparing a patient for surgery and, and, and managing them during surgery. So... I think what's really important is you don't look at um, checklists as this thing like a rigid structure that you have to obey. Okay, it's not a standard operating procedure. It's not a um, set of guidelines. Okay, it's merely there to help you work through the task. Um, so I'm just going to show you a little clip. This is um, Mir- the, the movie from Sully Miracle on the can you hear? we're So, what a lot of people worry about when um, confronted with checklists is that it's going to take away their um, clinical freedom and it's going to take away their um, kind of going to make them pointless into a robot. Okay, what impresses me, I know, I know it's fake, I know it's Tom Hanks and it's not the real Sully, but if there is actually the real video from the cockpit that you can actually look at, um, w- what impresses me is that the checklist is there, they're using it, and what it does is it helps the pilot make the decision that he needs to land in the river. Okay? It frees him up to solving the actual really big problem with this case, not remembering whether he's got the flaps up or down or whatever, but just actually, you know what, I'm going to have to land in the river. Okay? And that's what's important here. They're not there to confine you, they're there to help. Okay? That's the important message. So what kind of evidence do we have that this might be beneficial? Because I think that's relatively important, that we look at that before we start instigating them in veterinary practice. It all started out with this dude, who is Peter Prognost. He was at John Hopkins um, uh, Hospital in the States, Um, and he was was the first guy to kind of embrace checklists in medicine. Um, And he recognised that patients were basically dying from having complications associated with their jugular and central lines. So what he did was they thought, well, how how can we sort this out? Patients are getting infected, so they desired... Five um, relatively simple edu- um, interventions. They educated the staff. They created a special catheter for, um, insertion cart that had everything on it. It had drapes, it, um, gowns, gloves, etc., all in one place. Okay. Um, they tried to think: Does this catheter need to stay in, or can I take it out? Because obviously, if you don't have a catheter there, it's unlikely to cause an infection. Anyway. Okay. So they regularly checked to see whether they needed to pull the catheters. They had a checklist, okay? So the important thing to, to note here is the checklist is one part of this change. It's one part of this change that they introduced. It is not just the checklist that has the, um, the effects. It's, the, it's the, the kind of the culture around it as well. The other thing, which was the thing I lo- liked the most, was that it empowered the nurses that they were allowed to body check the, ser- the surgeons or the medics and physically restrain them if they th- saw them breaking any of the rules. Okay, so that was my favourite thing. Um, that was probably the most effective bit actually so they came up with a very simple checklist initially the <coughs> one on the right was cha- is the one that they kind of changed it to it's got a few extra things in but they were really really simple Okay, wash your hands sterilise the site drape the patient use sterile gloves and mask properly gown, surgical attire maintain the sterile field during the procedure and apply sterile dressing afterwards Okay, so they're all relatively simple. So how on earth is that going to work? Well, if you look at what they observed before they introduced the checklist, you can see why. Only 60, uh, 20, They observed 26 central line insertions. Only 16 of the people placing the lines actually washed their hands specifically for that procedure. Okay, so that's pretty. You know, that's pretty appalling. Okay, and then there's other things that you know. Uh, they, they, with, with their guidelines, only again only 16 out of the 26, or 62%, actually did all the guidelines. So you can see what, where the problem's coming. You know, it's because people aren't doing what the the guidelines aren't really. They're there, but they're not really um, kind of complying to them. Okay. Now the old-fashioned approach would be, well, whoever didn't wash their hands gets fired or gets struck off or whatever. <coughs> okay, but the kind of, it's a, 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 probably a slightly better approach and, the, um, and d- kind of takes into account that actually there may be circumstances that cause this to happen, is to come up with the checklist. Okay, so what happened afterwards? <coughs> Infections rates fell. So they um, uh, measure infection rates in, in um, catheter days. So per, um, from 11.3 per catheter, um, uh, per 1,000 catheter days down to 0 per catheter. Um, 1,000 catheter days. Okay. They then went on to estimate what that impact could have. Okay. So they, they, they believe that their, their implementation, that included a checklist, um, prevented 43 bloodstream infections, eight deaths, saved $2 million. Okay. That's quite a lot for something that's so simple. And um, they think they basically could reduce catheter site infections by up to 66%. Probably the more famous one is the Surgical Checklist. Okay, so this came in a little, little later. A little plug for Atul Gawande's book, The Checklist Manifesto. It's excellent if anyone wants to read the history of um, how um, the WHO um, Safe Surgical Checklist came into being. And they basically felt that um, people were dying unnecessarily from surgical complications. And they Devise a list of basic essential objectives. So they basically set up a load of guidelines, and they are relatively sensible things, like operate on the right patient, do the right surgery, that type of thing, okay? Um, and then there was other things, secure and accurately identify all surgical specimens, and things like that. So it was a whole range of things that they believe that anyone performing surgery in the entire world could actually achieve. So there's nothing special there, there is nothing complicated, there is no um, real thing that you think, well, that... That's unachievable, okay? So that, that, that's really important. So this is the checklist that they came up with. It's now quite infamous um, and, and uh, famous, depending on which way you look at it. Okay, um, it's done a lot of good and um, uh, throughout the world. Um, and I'll just come on to some of the figures with that. Some of the important things to notice is they kind of block it up into three different sections. So it, it actually uses natural... Um, Gaps in workflow. So before induction of anesthesia, before the first cut, and then before the patient is recovered. Okay, they're natural potential breaks where communication can occur. So they've used those. The other thing is they haven't put too much in each of the checklists. Uh, in each of the each of the lists, they're generally thought to be about eight to ten articles per um, per time point is sufficient. The other thing to to to, to note if you're looking at um, introducing a checklist is the one thing that they push in all of their literature and in all of the papers is that the checklist is not intended to be comprehensive. Okay, um, it needs to be modified and, um, and may have additions if you're going to use it in a different environment. Okay, they accept that this may not work in every single place. However, what they did was they looked in various in eight hospitals in varying. Um, socioeconomic circumstances, so from developing world countries through to developed world countries, um, they looked at massive p- um, patient populations and they measured morbid- mortality and morbidity, so post-op infections and things like that. They looked; at, um, they had a population of almost eight thousand patients, split before and after the intervention. Um, so, everyone knew they were being observed and that mortality and uh, morbidity were being assessed um, to try and reduce effects of the Hawthorne effect, which we kind of talked about earlier. Um, and all the staff um, in between the two um, sessions were trying to use the checklist. The impressive thing is they cut death by a half, and they cut complications by almost a half as well, just by introducing a checklist. Okay. And uh, th- the figures are pretty impressive. Now, what about veterinary medicine? Is there any veterinary medicine um, papers available? Well, unfortunately, um, as in most things, the, um, li- the literature is relatively sparse. There is this one paper that includes a small checklist in it. So they developed uh, um, a, a number of simple patient safety interventions in their hospital. Um, so they just did a, an error log. So they had a little diary that people wrote down whenever something, whenever a problem occurred. Okay, and then they looked at those errors, and um, they did it over about a year. So they had 74 incidents, and they thought, well, when some of the incidents hardly happen at all, let's concentrate on these th- first three. So we got medication error, leaving an APL valve closed on an anaesthetic um, breathing system, and esophageal intubation. And then the second part, when they did it again, they managed to reduce things by about 50%. Now. What they introduced was th- three things. Um, when, a pa- when a patient was being administered a drug, they got someone to read it out and exactly what it was, the drug name, the patient name, and how it was going to be given. Um, they had a few problems with people injecting um, drugs into the wrong IVs or into actually into arterial catheters, so they put a specific turquoise wrap on it, and then they had checkboxes that were added to the anaesthetic record label. Technician confirmed intubation and check- technician checked operating room. Okay, So relatively simple things that managed to reduce the incidence of these things by 50%. But it reduced it by 50%. Okay. Despite this, five times the wrong medication was given. Okay. So there was medication errors on five separate occasions despite this protocol being in place. And then there was two esophageal intubations, which um, were caused by the technician being distracted when the checklist was being um, performed. Okay. And I think that's relatively important. Nothing is going to reduce... A a checklist isn't foolproof. Nothing is going to reduce errors by 100%. So why might they fail? Well, we talked about compliance. Everyone needs to buy into these things, okay, that... um, it is really important that you get your whole practice on board. Okay, I'm going to go and show you. If I've got a little bit of time, I'm going to show you a couple more videos in a minute that show you why <coughs> compliance is so important. It's important to recognise it's not just a box ticking exercise, it's not the ticking of the boxes. that is important, it's the tasks that are involved with so it. If you, if you just blindly tick the boxes, it's not going to make any good either. It does take time and practice to implement. Okay, that no checklist is going to be universal. You can't cover cover anything, and if you just have checklists for absolutely everything, you kind of lose you, you kind of lose the power of the checklist. You, um, if you're going to introduce it, introduce it into areas which are really going to make a difference in your clinic. It requires buy-in from all involved. Um, so your attitude and culture and your and your team needs to be addressed. Um, try and avoid items added improving improve efficiency, just stick to safety. Just stick to the actual point. The problem is if you start to add in has the patient, patient been priced and checked, uh, like things like that, it kind of defies the, it de- defies the point. The point of it is a safety checklist. So take all the extraneous things out. Um, items that are relevant at, this, at that time point also are something to try and avoid too. Okay. So if it can be che- if it can be checked or done later on, and, and, and it isn't vital for the process. For me, it's, has the anaesthetic machine in theatre been checked? And it's just like, well, I've checked this one, I'll go and do it in a minute. That, that, like, um, it, just doesn't quite, it just doesn't quite work. Really, what you need is a check. I, I have an induction room, and then I move them into theatre. We we've got a, now got we a little check that goes, OK, just a quick check before we move the patient. Has the machine in theatre been checked, rather than doing it beforehand? And since we've done that, it works a little bit better. Oh, nurses are far more easier to convince than vets. So my advice is, if you want to get checklists into your practice, it's to give the admission to a nurse. Because you say, tell, tell a nurse that it's for patient safety, then they really take it on board, and they really try and um, bring it in. If you give it to a vet, then they'll kind of put it, they'll, they'll be interested, but they'll put it to the back. So if, if, if you want a champion, and you want a champion on the floor, so I would recommend picking your head nurse or someone suitable. From my personal experience, um, Checklists can be incredibly useful, okay? For me, they act as a trigger and a scaffold for communication. They give a specific time where everyone can speak up and say something that they, need to, that they need to say. It's an open forum, and most importantly, it's where the veterinary surgeon is not king, okay? So for me, it's the empowerment of the nursing staff and other staff to get involved in the case and to say something. Um, actually, you know, there are a lot of swabs on the floor covered in blood, even though you've said there's no blood loss. Okay. They give that opportunity for someone to, to, to speak up and say something. Um, a few other things, they will f- fail if, you, if people feel they're being enforced from above and if they are feeling that they are um, just there to tell them what to do. Okay. You need to introduce it as something that will um, help them perform their day-to-day job and that may actually make it more efficient. Okay. It will fail if it becomes too bureaucratic, if it becomes, oh, we've checked that this patient doesn't have a checklist in its file. You know, it, it's, people, that isn't going to encourage people to do it. It needs that ground level of support. It needs those people that are going to be performing the checklist to be on side, and most of all, it needs those. You know, it needs the people in that practice, the heads of that practice, to be on board as well, and to be um, um, and to be uh, champions of it. And re- again, it should be safety only. I don't. You know, it, 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 that's all it's about. It's about trying to improve safety. Once you start to introduce other things, like right, efficiency or, or pricing etc then I think it defies the point I am going to finish there and leave you with that quote which I think was quite a nice one, if only those with power would listen and incorporate the experience of those who have first hand knowledge of the reality of the situation on the ground the results would transform the ideas of leadership and decision making thank you